Hi, everybody. Liam here. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to tell you about a podcast called Revolutionary Care, an Oakland story. If you're a fan of East Bay Yesterday, that probably means you're interested in hearing about how our history, Oakland history, has impacted the rest of the world. This show, Revolutionary Care, is a perfect example of that. The podcast dives deep into the history of how the Black Panther Party, along with local doctors and researchers, were on the forefront of raising awareness about sickle cell anemia and actually coming up with new solutions for treating this illness, which primarily affects African Americans. The show was created by UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals, and as you'll hear in the podcast, Children's Hospital has emerged over the years as a unparalleled hub of sickle cell treatment and research. So if you want to hear about how sickle cell care has evolved from community clinics set up by the Black Panthers to revolutionary new science being developed right here in Oakland, check out Revolutionary Care, an Oakland story. You can find it anywhere you get podcasts. And I'll also drop a link in the show notes. Big thank you to the UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals for supporting this episode of East Bay Yesterday. Okay, one other thing before starting the show. What you're about to hear is my 100th episode. I could talk all day about what this means to me, but I'm really excited to get to today's story, so I won't talk all day about that. For now, I just want to acknowledge everyone that supported me and this show for the past seven years, everyone who's sent a nice message or shared an episode with friends or donated to my Patreon. This show simply, it just wouldn't exist without you. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and uh, extra special shout out to my wife, Elizabeth. You know how much I love East Bay yesterday, but I love you more. Thanks for everything, baby. All right, that's enough. Uh, let's hear episode number 100. Here we go. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. A few months ago, Oakland did something that no city had ever done before. It gave land back to the descendants of the Ohlone people. Technically speaking, it created a cultural easement for the Segorite Land Trust, an organization led by local indigenous women. And I'll get into the details later, but this was a very big deal. A non-federally recognized tribe got nearly five acres in Oakland's biggest park. The San Francisco Chronicle called Oakland, quote, the first city in California to use municipal property as reparations for European settlers stealing Native American territories. This story got a lot of media attention, so I was trying to think of a new angle. I, I really wanted to cover it on this show without repeating what was already out there, and then the answer just kind of fell into my lap. I got an email from Segorte Land Trust, and I won't read the whole thing, but it said, East Bay yesterday came to mind when we began brainstorming, who might offer an updated version of the story of this park and the man it's named for? The park is named for Joaquin Miller, and I've spent <laughs> the last six months trying to figure out who he was. That process has been a lot more challenging than I anticipated. All right. Let's see. Check, check, check. All right. It is recording. That would be the worst. Right. <laughs> Have a great conversation. <laughs> the red light's not actually on. Um, all right. So first, I was wondering if you could just, you know, say your name, introduce yourself, and just talk a little bit about who you are. Yeah. Good afternoon. It's good to see you again, Liam. I'm Karina Gould. I'm the co-founder of the Segorite Land Trust. I'm also the tribal chair for the Confederated Villages of Lashan Nation here in the East Bay. This was my second time interviewing Karina Gould. The first time was about seven years ago. Back then, we were mostly talking about shell mounds, the Ohlone's sacred burial sites. Hundreds of shell mounds used to ring the bay, marking village sites, but nearly all of them were demolished or paved over 
by the early 1900s. Around the time of that first interview, the Segorte Land Trust had just officially launched. Since then, the global movement to return land to indigenous people has grown significantly. This land transfer up in Joaquin Miller Park being a major example. So, after a few months of research, very frustrating research, I sat down with Karina again and asked her why Segorite was interested in finding out about Joaquin Miller. You know, I think like most people in Oakland, we hear the name over and over again. Yeah. You don't really pay attention to it very much. Mm -hmm. I think it wasn't until we really started looking at this land up there that we started to dig di deeper into who was this character, mm -hmm. Joaquin Miller, right? What was he doing up there? And, you know, as you start reading the history of who this, because I think he really was a character, right? He made, he was made himself up. He created a bunch of books and stuff like that. He was a womanizer. He, you know, um, all of these kinds of things, you know, that you don't think about it. And then for me, when I grow up here in my own territory, when I uh, see people like, or places named mm -hmm. after somebody that came here um, that really uh, doesn't represent us ever, mm -hmm. right? That this was a place that our ancestors had gathered food and medicines for thousands of years. It often reminds me of other names like Peralta that are all over the Bay Area. People take for granted. Who are these people that showed up here and why are they named after? Why are these particular places and things named after them? And what happened to the people that was before them? And I think that we never go beyond that question, right? So who is Joaquin Miller? Why does he get a whole park and schools and all of these other things named after him? Yeah. Is this somebody that actually was somebody that actually should have anything named after him? So those are the kind of the questions that I had. You know, I, I know about, you know, he's got a little cabin up there. I know he died up mm -hmm. in the Oakland Hills and he gets to be remembered. But my ancestors who have lived here for thousands of years in a territory called Huchun, you don't get to hear about them or the name of this, the real name of this place. Yeah. And so I think in some places, you know, us being able to name that one little part mm -hmm. um, in our language is growth. Just in case you didn't catch that last part, yes, the name of the parcel of land in Joaquin Miller Park that Segorte Land Trust just got, a place formerly known as Sequoia Point, the name of that place has been officially changed. This name change is just one step in a process of decolonization, but it's an important one. Yeah, so um, we've been doing a lot of work in the East Bay uh, for many years, decades, about the um, reclaiming this land in a way that actually shows that we're still here. And part of that is actually coming up with names again for the places that are special for us. And so my daughter, Deja Gould, is the tribal language carrier and has been um, involved in renaming many places in the Bay Area or reclaiming those names again. And so she, uh, when we were up there at this place that was Joaquin Miller Park now, this area that we've reclaimed, is now called um, Rinimu Pulte Erikne, and that means the place above the red ochre. You know, in terms of what we look at the Bay Area now, we look at it in little parcels or private land ownerships or houses or, so this place is actually a place of, uh, of a greater landscape that our ancestors have always been connected to. And for many years, our ancestors would actually go and gather or mine uh, ochre for paint, for lining burial sites, uh, for many different things. And there's a beautiful place that's right, it's right above where our ancestors would have done that mining. But it's also this place that you can look out and you can see the vastness of our territory, the bay, the place that we call Ramatush, the place uh, out to the west of us. And that's in the San Francisco and all of that area there. 
And so this beautiful place is a part of this landscape that our ancestors had had a continuous uh, connection to for since the beginning of time. In recent years, more and more cities have been renaming parks to honor Native people. More meetings start with land acknowledgments. The East Bay City of Albany even started flying a flag above City Hall that celebrates the Confederated Villages of Lashan, Karina's people. But there's a big difference between these symbolic gestures and what's happening up at Renimu Pulte Arikne. What's happening up there, it's not supposed to be a one-and-done type deal. The groundwork is being laid for it to be part of something much bigger. So, to talk about that, I checked in with someone who might have some say on the matter. Yeah, my name is Shang Tao, and I'm Oakland's 51st mayor. A few weeks after becoming the first Hmong American mayor ever in a major U.S. city, Shang Tao invited me to City Hall. She was the council member representing the district with Joaquin Miller Park when the land transfer happened. And for her, this rematriation, as it's being called, has been a powerful process. It's something that I'm very proud of. That's actually one of my proudest moments uh, as a council member of the district is to really be able to give land back to the natives, the people that were here way before you and I or anybody else. And um, it was very emotional. It was extremely emotional because I am a daughter of refugees. And what I thought about is imagining a world where my parents were able or their children's children were able to receive their land back. And, um, and so it, it's just been so joyous. And, and I'm very, I, I take very seriously uh, understanding of where you come from. My son is uh, part Lakota as well too. And so for me, it was very personal to ensure that the history, the rich history be, uh, behind the Ohlone tribes and other, uh, other Native Americans and their language as well, their culture, their language, and all of that, that it's preserved. And this is just the first step of, a, of multiple steps to ensure that we are preserving the heritage of Native Americans here in the city of Oakland. And the great thing about it, because uh, Oakland is such a pioneer, that it's the first kind of uh, you know land give back. And so I know that many other cities across the nation are now looking at how do they help with giving back land that was stolen, mm-hmm. right? And so um, that was just a very special moment, and uh, I look forward to working with Sigourite for more land give backs. So what are the next steps for Renimu Pulte Arikne? And how is this project being developed to serve as a model for a broader movement? Those questions will be answered in this episode. But first, let's return to the question of Joaquin Miller. I've been asking around for the last few months, and everyone in Oakland knows Joaquin Miller Park. But most people either know basically nothing about the man it was named for, or just that he was a famous poet who used to live up there on the property. Miller's house is still up there, by the way, but it's not very big, so it's pretty easy to miss. Uh, You know what? Before I go any further, I should describe what he looked like, because uh, his appearance is mentioned in all the articles about him, which is unsurprising, considering that um, one visitor described him as, quote, an eccentric old man with long white hair and beard, corduroy pants tucked into his boots, a flaming red sash around his waist a large diamond ring on his finger, and a bear skin on his shoulders. So, (laughs) kind of a cross between Santa Claus, a cowboy, and like a 1970s Mac. Anyway, nobody disputes Miller was a famous poet who lived in the Oakland Hills and had a, shall we say, unique sense of style, but just about everything else about him is up for debate, starting with exactly when and where he was born. This is why researching Joaquin Miller was so challenging. His writing and the stories he told blended fact and fiction. You can read three different articles about Joaquin Miller, and they all contradict each other. His Wikipedia page, it's riddled with errors. Can't rely on that for clarification. There was even one book about him called Splendid Poser 
that claims to be a debunking, but his defenders would say that that book gets it all wrong. They debunk the debunking. Basically, Miller has always been a controversial figure. Literary superstars like Mark Twain and Walt Whitman admired him, but most American critics, at least early in his career, either ignored Miller or thought he was a phony. I have dug about as deep as it gets in trying to sort all this out, and here's what I'll say for now. He was a man of contradictions. Here's an example. After living among a Wintu tribe near Mount Shasta as a young man, Joaquin Miller wrote the first novel denouncing the genocide of California's native people. One historian writing in the 1930s said that, quote, Miller's defense of Indian rights was so outspoken that sometimes he was called a white renegade, end quote. But on the other hand, if you go up to Joaquin Miller Park today, you can find a large stone monument honoring General John C. Fremont, a man who essentially murdered his way through Northern California and Oregon, leaving dozens, perhaps hundreds, of dead indigenous people in his bloody wake. The person who built that monument to Fremont was Joaquin Miller, the same Joaquin Miller who wrote that novel defending native people. Also, most of Miller's poetry was about nature, but his most famous poem, the one that school kids across the country were forced to memorize and recite for generations, that poem is called Columbus. And yes, it was written about that Columbus. Most disturbing is that Miller was present during an attack on a group of Achamawi people just south of Mount Shasta around 1857, although the number of casualties and Miller's exact role in this conflict are still unclear. Besides Karina Gould and Mayor Tao, another person who I interviewed for this episode is a man named Alan Rosinas. Alan edited and published the selective writings of Joaquin Miller, and he wrote the afterword to the most recent edition of Miller's most famous book, Life Amongst the Modocs. During our conversation, Alan read me one of Miller's poems, and I want to share it with you right now. Here it is. Listen carefully. In men whom men condemn as ill, I find so much of goodness still. In men whom men pronounce divine, I find so much of sin and blot. I do not dare to draw a line between the two where God has not. I'm going to repeat that. In men whom men condemn as ill, I find so much of goodness still. In men whom men pronounce divine, I find so much of sin and blot. I do not dare to draw a line between the two where God has not. Let's think about this poem for a second. Is Miller telling the reader that he refuses to judge others because we all contain good and evil in our hearts? Or is he asking the reader not to judge him? Is he offering guidance? Or is he begging forgiveness? When Miller died in 1913, hundreds of mourners trekked up to a ridge on his property, not far from where Renimu Pulte Erikne is now. As Miller's ashes were sent towards the heavens, one of the speakers said that Miller was both strong and weak, wise and unwise, a very human man. But what if we want to get more specific? Was Joaquin Miller a champion for Native rights or a traitor? Should his legacy be associated with decolonization or white supremacy? It's not my decision to make. It's yours. I'm just here to share what I learned about the past and maybe give you a little glimpse of the future as well. This is episode 100 
of East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned. Joaquin Miller liked to tell people that he was born in 1841 in a covered wagon pointing west. This wasn't true, but it was pretty close. He was really born in 1837 in Indiana, and his family did head west on the Oregon Trail while he was still a youngster. Oh, and the name on his birth certificate? It wasn't Joaquin. It was Cincinnatus Miller. As soon as he was old enough, Cincinnatus ran away from home in search of adventure. Once again, here's author and historian Alan Rosinas. In uh, going through uh, his books and journals, etc., what I noticed is how uh, restless he was. When he was in Oregon, he wanted to head for California. Later, he longed to go to Mexico and England. But during his childhood, after the Miller family had settled near Eugene, Oregon, a character named Mountain Joe began to tell young Joaquin about the gold country across the border near Mount Shasta. Though he wasn't 17 yet, that's where Miller wanted to go. Once he got to the minefields, he earned money by cooking for the miners. Miller ended up spending about the next four years, basically his late teens and early 20s, in Siskiyou and Shasta counties. Here's some context about the culture in Northern California during this era. In 1853, the Wairika Herald, one of the biggest newspapers in the region, called for a, quote, war of extermination until every last member of every tribe is eliminated. This was not an uncommon position at the time. The state of California was funding militias that hunted down and killed Native people. Genocide was government policy. All right, so in 1855, a young Joaquin Miller is working for this old-timer named Mountain Joe when their mining camp is raided by a group of Modocs. The Native people steal their food and supplies and burn down some buildings. In response, the miners decide to go after them. They get together a few dozen guys, including about 30 men from the local Shasta tribe who were allies of the white forces, and they launch an attack against the Modocs. Now, there are at least two books that claim Joaquin Miller wasn't really at this battle, but other reliable sources do back up his story, which is that during the fight, he was shot in the side of the face with an arrow and almost died. A few whites and members of the Shasta tribe did end up dying, but most of the losses were on the Modoc side. Two chiefs were reportedly killed. Okay, here's the thing. The way I just described this battle left out a very important part of the story. Why the Modocs attacked the mining camp in the first place. About 15 years after these events, Miller would publish a book called Life Amongst the Modocs, which was a semi-autobiographical novel about these years. It's loosely based on his life, but he also exaggerated a lot of the scenes for dramatic effect. Anyway, there's a scene in this book where, after the battle, he's talking to an old Modoc woman who is agonizing over the death of her family. And Miller, the character, says, I ventured to protest. They had first robbed us. Then he writes, No, the old woman said, You robbed us first. You drove us from this river. We could not fish. We could not hunt. We were hungry. My boys did not kill you. They only took things to eat. This battle seems to be a turning point for Miller in real life, because after he recovers from the arrow wound, he does something that was extremely unusual. He abandons white society for about a year, and during that time, he goes to live with a group of Wintu people, another nearby tribe. And I'll be honest, I don't really understand at all why he was accepted by this tribe. He apparently even married the chief's daughter. And by all accounts, this actually really happened. I know, pretty crazy. Anyway, the chief's name was Blackbeard, and the woman's name was Sutatot. By the end of the year, Miller and Sutatot had a child together, a girl 
named Callie Shasta. Okay, I'm about to read a passage from Miller's book, Life Amongst the Modocs, that I think really captures the mental transformation he had during his time with the Wintu. After joining in a sacred dance ceremony, he writes, I, who have been raised in a Christian country, who have been taught to go weekly to the house of God and there offer up my prayers and to kneel at the family altar. I say that in their prayers, he's talking about the Wintu prayers, I say that in their prayers offered up to the God of their being, there's more true faith, more pure religion, and less hypocrisy than there is in the best branch of worshipers that the Christian religion ever gave birth to. In other words, Miller has more respect for the Wintu's relationship with the Creator than the white man's organized religion. Here's Alan Rosinas again. Observing the habits of the Indians, he noticed that everything in nature had a meaning for them, far more than, than whites out in nature. Meanwhile, in the towns, there was little peace. There were fights between people who owned gold, people who owned livestock, uh, battles over mining claims, deer uh, and other game were becoming uh, scarce and people fought over that. A tragedy was unfolding before Miller's eyes. As Miller wrote in his journal, can we dig peace or wisdom from the mine? Gold banished honor from the mine. In 1856, the white settlers, pushing further and further into this region where native people had lived for millennia, sparked a major conflict. When word of this reached the Wintu, Chief Blackbeard told Miller to stay out of it. But instead, Miller left his wife and baby daughter behind to go find out what happened. So he went, uh, he went with two Indians southeast uh, to investigate what was happening on the Pitt River. Almost on the same day that he left, an irate ferry boat operator named Sam Lockhart set out by a different route to learn what had happened to his twin brother, Harry. Not only Harry, but four or five other whites had been killed by the Pitt River Indians, also called the Achamawi. It was later determined that many of these white newcomers in the valley had been abusing Achamawi women. Sam Lockhart had a foul nature. He didn't care if people liked him or not. And he had zero tolerance for Indians. A Sacramento paper had found out that Sam had been lacing flour with strychnine and leaving it where hungry Indians would find it. When he and Miller encountered each other in the vicinity of the recent murders, Sam was on his way to collect an army to launch a bloody reprisal attack on the pits. By then, Sam had already heard stories about some young white kid who was living with an Indian wife on McAdams Creek, and he immediately assumed that Miller, who didn't belong in that neck of the woods with Lockhart, might have had something to do with the murder of his brother Harry. What happens after this depends on whose story you want to believe, but it sounds like this Sam Lockhart guy basically took Joaquin Miller hostage and started to organize a revenge attack against the Achamawi. And this was not like a scrappy little militia. The U.S. Army even got involved. They used Miller as a sort of scout, and it's unclear exactly how useful he was, but by the end of this mission, a large group of Achamawi were massacred. Maybe dozens. Maybe even more. In the Life Against Modoc's book, the Miller character describes becoming a leader of the white troops, but this was probably not the case. Historians say that Miller was exaggerating his role for dramatic effect in the book, but either way, he comes to see this conflict as a disgrace. He writes, It is a thousand times more to my shame than honor, and I shall never cease to regret it.
After the massacre, Miller writes that he was shot in the arm during an ambush by some of his white companions who didn't like him or trust him, but he escaped this attempted assassination. Whether or not that really happened, the following decade of Miller's life was very eventful. He allegedly stole a horse to get revenge on a greedy boss who wasn't paying his workers and got thrown in jail. His wife, Sutatote, might have helped him break out. But again, it depends on whose story you believe. Uh, what is confirmed is that Miller moved back to Oregon. He edited a newspaper, became a judge, which strikes me as bizarre, but that definitely happened somehow. Uh, he got married to another woman, a white woman this time, and had another daughter. Uh, all that happened before he turned 30. Oh, and uh, he briefly transported gold for the Pony Express. It's unclear why his relationship with his Wintu wife, Sutatote, ended. But at some point, while Joaquin is living in Oregon, Sutatote and her daughter, Kelly Shasta, were kidnapped by Modocs during a raid. But apparently they were later rescued by a man named Jim Brock. Again, the details, all very murky. But around 1870, Miller somehow reconnects with Kelly Shasta, his daughter, and brings her down to Oakland. So, Miller moved back to the Bay to try to make it as a writer. This is where all the major California publications were based at the time. But he couldn't earn enough to make a living. So, after a little while, he decided to try his luck in London instead. Before leaving, he handed off Kelly Shasta to his friend to raise. The person who ended up raising Kelly Shasta was a woman named Ina Coolbreath. Coolbreath was Oakland's first librarian, and by all accounts, a really wonderful person. Episode number one of East Bay Yesterday is actually all about her, if you want to hear more. But for now, I'll just say one more thing about Ina Coolbreath. She's the one who convinced Miller to change his name. She thought he'd never make it as a famous poet with a name like Cincinnatus. So where did the Joaquin come from? The story is that back when his name was still Cincinnatus, Miller had published a poem celebrating the infamous outlaw, Joaquin Murrieta. Most people hated this poem because they thought Miller was glorifying a bandit. But Ina Coolbrith thought the name Joaquin had a nice ring to it. So Miller adopted it as his uh, nom de plume. Okay, buckle up, because this is the part where Miller goes to London and becomes a celebrity. At first, he can't find a publisher to put out his poetry collection, Song of the Sierra. So he allegedly sells his watch to pay for 100 copies to be printed. A few big critics get their hands on the book, they really like it, and next thing you know, Joaquin Miller is like the hottest thing in London. People living in grimy, polluted, industrial England loved reading about the rugged Western scenery in Miller's book of poetry. It was a kind of escapism for these pale Victorian gentlemen and ladies. Now, I'm about to play a clip from my interview with an author named Kristen Cavan, who happens to be the current writer-in-residence at Joaquin Miller Park. She has a blog called Walkin' with Joaquin, all about her experiences up there, and uh, she's going to take us through some of Miller's time in England. So Miller had been, um, he'd spent a lot of time in the gold mining, uh, in the Indian Wars and in the gold mining, that whole insane, you know, things that happened in California um, during the mid-1800s. And we, we have these tropes of, um, like, you know, swinging door saloon and bar fights and all that, because he wrote them down first in his book, Life Among the Modocs. And he like adopted this swagger of this, you know, this Western swagger with, um, he's a very tall man. Um, he wore chaps and thigh boots and, you know, long flowing hair and big 10 gallon hat and, you know, colorful Mexican print fabrics. And when he got to London, <laughs> they just did not, they'd never seen anything like him. I mean, obviously were, they were already just like enthralled by tales of the American West. So here he was stepping life size, bigger than life, you know, onto their teacup shores. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so he was, he was just delightful to them. He was a showman. And, the, yeah, they really embraced him over there, right? Mm -hmm. Because he was, like, um, just, like, almost like a spectacle in this, like, kind of buttoned-up Victorian society. Here's this cowboy with these mm -hmm. bigger-than-life tales of the Wild West. Yep. It's uh, kind of an astonishing story of, like, 
like you said, he, he wasn't really being accepted in California, but he goes over to England and he was like basically a rock star there. Well, in a way, I think he had that sense of self-promotion that was maybe, I'm sure it wasn't new in the world then, but it's so common now, right? It's so common, you know, even with our social media lifestyle that you have to kind of present yourself in a certain way, draw attention, you know, like that's, but he was, I think he, he kind of invented that whole thing. And so obviously um, around, you know, the people who know you, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to be that around people who see you full time. But when he went out st- on stage, he was a real, um, very at- um, attention grabbing. Yeah. These days, most people probably think of poet as kind of an obscure profession. But back then, big-time poets really were celebrities. And so I want to make a modern analogy to help put that idea and Miller's behavior in context. Think about someone like Too Short, one of the most famous rappers to ever come from the streets of Oakland. Too Short created a public persona through his lyrics and his style that he knew would gain notoriety and appeal to the people who were buying rap records. Too Short has said that even in songs where he's rapping in the first person, he's telling exaggerated stories, not giving literal autobiographical details about his life. Most entertainers probably do this to one degree or another. What makes Joaquin Miller unique is that he did this thing, this thing of you know building a famous identity as a kind of lifelong piece of performance art. He did it before the age of mass media. Here's a quote from an old newspaper article about his time in London that pretty much summarizes this strategy. Quote, he quickly discovered that he could trade on his frontier experiences as a ticket of entry to the drawing rooms of the wealthy and titled. He flaunted a Wild West appearance, wearing his long hair over his shoulders. As he said later, it helps sell the poems, boys, and it tickles the duchesses. And, and also, I think he was very aware that um, he was crafting a character. Yeah. You know, and um, and he, he he did that thing where he created the persona of who he wanted to be. You know, he wanted to be a famous poet, and um, he found a way to do it. He was not an academic. You know, all the you know, he really came from the outside, and he really he kind of rocked the whole academic poetry community here. They were like, <laughs> uh, they called him a poser, like because they they just. Um, they found him so fanciful and, uh, and so uh, uh, slippery. We're all familiar with the tropes of the Wild West. Gunslingers on horseback, riding off into the sunset, yada, yada, yada. But when Joaquin Miller went to England, most people over there had really never seen anything like this. This was years before entertainers like Buffalo Bill packaged the caricatures of the Wild West as a traveling global roadshow. And I just want to mention this because a lot of the information coming out about the so-called Indian Wars was essentially propaganda. The U.S. government and military wanted to justify the fact that they were slaughtering Native people all over the West and taking their land. So a lot of media coverage at the time played up stereotypes of vicious savages attacking those poor white settlers. You know the stories. Anyway, Joaquin Miller's book, Life Amongst the Modocs was published in 1873, and it was the first major novel by a Western writer that tried to basically change the attitude of white people towards Native Americans. When the book was republished in 1996, Malcolm Margolin wrote the foreword. Margolin, by the way, uh, was also the author of The Ohlone Way and the founder of Heyday, a book publisher that's put out many books about California's Native history. So in the foreword, Margolin wrote, quote, not only did life amongst the Modocs provide a book-length treatment of this hideous period of American history, but for the first time in Western literature, the Indians who were being massacred were portrayed as people, people with whom Miller had lived, people with whom he knew and admired. So Miller wrote this book essentially defending Native people, and that's great, but 
Let's take a look at the bigger picture and ask why. Why did it have to be a white guy who wrote this book? Obviously, it's because nobody from the Modocs or the Wintu or any of these other native tribes around California would have had the privilege to publish a book or even be taken seriously by white audiences because they were still being persecuted and treated as almost subhuman. Miller's book may have had a noble message, but the man who wrote it was neither a savior nor a saint. Again, here's Segorite Land Trust co-founder, Karina Gould. It's really interesting during this time period when mm -hmm. he was here, mm -hmm. right? Um, around that time period when California was being created, that he had the uh, ability and the privilege of going to a bunch of different places, mm -hmm. right? It was still a time during California where lots of Native people were hiding out mm -hmm. from being hunted uh, legally by this, by this country, that he had the ability to go to different places where Native people lived, that he apparently participated in living with them, mm -hmm. um, having children with a woman, a, a child with a woman, um, uh, that was uh, Wintoon, um, and then deserting her, mm -hmm. you know? And what does that look like? But then married again and had children with another woman that was not Native and deserted them as well. Mm -hmm. you know, so those are the kind of things I think that really it's like this patriarchal privilege Mm -hmm. of doing that over and over again yeah. um, that uh, that it continues to happen to this day right and yeah. Joaquin Miller was yeah. this guy that was looked up to and those mm -hmm. were some of his attributes so I know that Joaquin Miller Park is, has a very special place in your heart can you tell me about um, yeah what, what is your relationship with this particular piece of land yeah. So Joaquin Miller Park is my favorite place uh, in the whole city. Um, a little biased because I used to represent that area. However, um, for me, it's about you know being able to bring my children up to the park at a very young age. Even when I was a single mom and you know with my son, that's where we went for free recreation. And the park itself is so expansive that you wouldn't even think that it's part of the city of Oakland. Right. Um, it was a, a very much a healing space as well, and it continues to be. And, and to that point, you know, we've seen that uh, the attendance to the park has quadrupled, especially during COVID. That, of course, was Shang Tao, the mayor of Oakland. And the reason why Joaquin Miller Park feels like such an oasis compared to most of Oakland is because most of Oakland, the flatlands at least, are extremely developed, urban, even post-industrial. But as soon as you enter this park, you're engulfed by this thick forest. It feels like being transported to a different world. But even though this might feel like nature, there's nothing natural about this place. Here's the story. After making his big splash in England, Miller cranked out a bunch of poetry books, novels, even plays. He gets married again for the third time, this time to a hotel heiress. They have a daughter. They move to Washington, D.C. But by the mid-1880s, California was calling to Joaquin. So he returns to the Golden State without his wife and daughter. Uh, noticing a pattern yet? Anyway, then he buys 70 acres of land in the Oakland Hills, and he calls this place the Heights. Right away, he gets to work. He builds a fish pond, gardens, flower beds, orchards. All that stuff is long gone. What you still can see is the modest little home that he built for himself and his aging mother, whom he took care of in her final years. That home used to be pretty dilapidated, but now it's a protected historical landmark. Anyway, the way that Miller really transformed the land was by planting trees. We'll hear more from Karina about this a little later, but until the late 1800s, the Oakland Hills were mostly grasslands, except for a few redwood groves along some creeks. And this wasn't an accident. For thousands of years, the Ohlone used fires to maintain the kind of ecosystem they wanted, one with grasses that produced useful seeds and fibers, one where you could hunt game out in the open, and one that wouldn't be prone to catastrophic megafires like we are now. But Joaquin Miller didn't know any of this. 
he just saw the stumps of massive redwoods that had been clear-cut during the gold rush, and he decided that the heights needed some trees. So he planted somewhere in the neighborhood of 75,000 of them. That's right, around 75,000. Unfortunately, he planted mostly non-natives like eucalyptus, which we all know are extremely fire-prone. Either way, as you might imagine, Miller had a lot of help with all this manual labor. Young people, mostly students, would come from as far away as Japan to spend time living with the famous, quote, poet of the Sierra, as he was uh, then known. Uh, in fact, one of the men who came from Japan, a guy named Yoni Noguchi, ended up spending years living at the Heights and later becoming a famous poet in his own right. I'm not sure if these dudes were getting paid or if it was like a free room and board type arrangement, but one of the benefits of spending time at the Heights was getting to hang out with all of Miller's famous visitors. I won't name all the writers and artists and notable people like John Muir who spent time there, but Miller's place became known as the creative hub of the Bay Area. The author, Charles Warren Stoddard, said that Miller was, quote, the center of our solar system. Kristen Cavan, the current writer-in-residence at the park, is part of a group called the California Writers Club that traces its origins all the way back to those informal meetings of Joaquin Miller's literary circle. For more than a century, the Writers Club has been holding readings and other creative events up there. Here's Kristen again, talking about the early days of this tradition. He built a community up here that was, he'd have these little eight by 10 shacks and you know, you could come up and see if one was empty and if it was, you could stay a while. It was, it was kind of, it was very communal. And people would make pilgrimages up here from Oakland. It was like the thing to do. You would walk up the hill to see the poet. And it was like a five mile trek up the hill. You know, this was before motor cars, because I think when cars came out like in the early teens, he yeah. died in 1913. So mm -hmm. this was, you know, before that people might come up in horse and carriages. A lot of people just walked because yeah. this land um, attracted, you know, what, what he created, he, he, was, he was like, he was such a host. He loved being a host. He loved welcoming people. Like, like think of Fantasy Island, right? <laughs> um, yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it's like a Fantasy Island because they did. They spun fantasies. They came up here. They told stories. Um, a lot of all of the, the the everybody in the literary community spent time up here. People weren't just coming up here to hang out with Joaquin Miller and his famous friends. Just like now, people were drawn here by the scenery, for writers, poets, artists, anyone looking for inspiration. Really, all you have to do is look out at the bay especially while the sun is setting over the Golden Gate. And, well, there it is. Sure, there are a lot more buildings out on the horizon now, but the view that Joaquin Miller spent the last few decades of his life gazing at is what keeps Kristen coming back here week after week. I just really want to honor the literary energy that um, shaped this place. Because yeah. you, you can really feel it up here. I mean... This view is incredibly inspirational, so I can see why, you know, a poet or a writer would want to spend as much time up here as they could. Well, just the light is always changing. The, um, the water looks silver. Sometimes it looks black. Sometimes it's just lit up with color. And every, every time you come up here, it looks different. His 50s and 60s seemed to be the happiest time of Joaquin Miller's life. He was reunited with his daughter, Kelly Shasta, who, by some reports, lived out her last few years up at the Heights. And later, his youngest daughter, Juanita, moved up there too. Miller spent his twilight years planting trees, hosting guests, and also one other thing you might be familiar with if you've ever hiked through the park, building large stone monuments. Even though he didn't partake in organized religion, he was sort of a non-denominational Christian. Miller constructed a pyramid in honor of Moses. There's also a sort of mini tower dedicated to the poets Robert and Elizabeth Browning, but the most problematic monument is the one I mentioned earlier, the rectangular structure dedicated to General John C. Fremont. In Miller's mind, the place where he built the monument is the same spot where Fremont, a quote-unquote explorer, 
coined the term Golden Gate while looking out at the bay. Fremont was leading a group of soldiers through California, and to make a long story short, they murdered many Native people while on their mission. During Miller's time, Fremont was seen as a frontier hero by many. His violence whitewashed by the history books, as was usually the case back then. So I don't know if Miller was familiar with Fremont's brutality, but the monument is still troubling. Oh, and there's one other monument up there that I haven't mentioned yet, a funeral pyre. Miller wanted to be cremated on a stone altar, but the city of Oakland wouldn't allow it. They said it was against health codes or something like that. So a few weeks after Miller's death in 1913, after he'd been cremated somewhere else, hundreds of mourners gathered to watch his ashes being scattered on the flaming altar. In the decades since then, Miller's literary reputation has faded, but around here at least, everyone still knows his name because of the park that he helped create. Towards the end of his life, he turned down offers from real estate speculators to sell the land for development. Apparently, he wanted it to remain open, and he also wanted his daughter, Juanita, to be able to live there as long as she wanted. Both of those things happened. Oakland began the process of officially turning it into a park in 1919, and Juanita lived in her dad's old home until 1933, when the cabin was damaged by a fire. Juanita did stay close by, though. She organized events at the park, celebrating her dad's legacy all the way up through 1970, when she died at the age of 90. But what was her dad's legacy, exactly? I've read through dozens of articles about Joaquin Miller, and most of them are filled with a mix of truth and legend, nods to his accomplishments and acknowledgments of his many missteps and shortcomings. Few who have taken the time to appraise Miller fall exclusively into the category of admirer or detractor. Even his biggest critics admit to being fascinated by the man. And his fans, they too recognize his flaws. So I confess that the thing that actually drew me to Joaquin Miller as a man was he reminded me of my grandfather, who was um, a poet, but he was really thought of very negatively in my family. Uh, he had also been an alcoholic, but he also started Alcoholic Anonymous, um, or he was part of it. Um, he he, you know, could barely you know, make enough money, you know, to, 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 to take care of his kids. He, he, did, he just did, like, a lot of weird things. Like, he married a lady without even telling her that he had four kids that he put in an orphanage. So, like, lots of... He made some really crazy choices in his life. Um, but he had a kind heart. Um, and um, he was a little, a little lost sometimes, but he really loved poetry, and he was very creative. So I kind of, when I met Joaquin, I kind of got his type, you know, that, that there's different perceptions around art and creativity. And um, the more I, and he really is one of these people who, like, the more I learn about him, the more human he is to me and how imperfect all humans are. So he had a journey that, um, that changed him. And so I just kind of am trying to take him as a, as a whole being. In 2014, a local filmmaker named Michelle Grace Steinberg made a short documentary about Ohlone history. It's called Beyond Recognition. A few years later, Libby Schaff, who was Oakland's mayor at the time, saw the film, and it had a powerful effect on her. She reached out to Karina Gould and Janella LaRose, who are featured in the film, to invite them to City Hall. Here's Karina explaining what happened next. So Janella LaRose and myself, who's the co-founder of the Scorte Land Trust, went to a meeting. And then Mayor Libby Schaff basically said that, you know, I want to create some kind of a healing. I grew up here in Oakland my entire life and didn't know the story of what had happened here and who the people were and that you're still here and that we need to do something. 
And so she said, I don't know how to go about this, but maybe one of the things we could think about is land and giving land back. Because we are a non-federally recognized tribe, we are homeless in our own homeland. We don't have a land base. And so even though we have an unbroken connection and tie to this land, we've never left our home territory, we still don't have any land that we can call our own. It doesn't give us the uh, access to gather food and medicines or to do any of those kinds of things, to have that connection that our ancestors did. So the city of Oakland had a list of public property all over the place. I mean, some of it's warehouses or little pieces of property in the middle of streets or different things like that. Mm -hmm. And then she said, well, you know, Joaquin Miller is actually Oakland city property. And um, why don't you look up there if you want to as well? And so uh, my daughter Deja and um, one of the crew from Segorte Lantras, Victoria Montano, took off and went up there. And they started walking around and explored a lot of different places. And they found themselves at this one flat place because, you know, if you've ever been to Joaquin Miller, there aren't very many flat places mm -hmm. up there. They found this flat place called Sequoia Point. And we began to have conversations with uh, the mayor's office about what about this place. And her and I both joked about uh, as teenagers that this was a place that many teenagers had gone, um, uh, not just as a lookout point, but for other, <laughs> other uh, activities. Um, and so we, we, we started out talking about that and um, decided upon that. And we signed an LOI eventually between the city and Segorte to begin to explore what it would look like for us to begin to take that land back. That LOI, letter of intent, was the beginning of a process that took years because figuring out how to essentially donate city land to a group representing a tribe that doesn't have federal recognition, well, they pretty much had to create the roadmap for how to do that legally. But eventually, the city and Segorite figured it out. Now, the next phase begins, transforming this land into a kind of cultural center. In Karina's vision, Renimu Pulte Arikne won't just be a sacred site for native people to gather, although that will be a very important function, but it'll also be a place to demonstrate traditional land management techniques that could be useful far beyond Oakland. One of the things that we really wanted to do was to have a place where we could have cultural ceremony, but also education because so many people don't know about who we are and that it's important for that to happen. But to re-engage in the land, to replant plants that should be there, right? Mm -hmm. That had been taken out, that, there, that we should grow this healthy forest in a place where there is fire danger for everybody that lives in Oakland, mm -hmm. right? To begin to look at how do we use this uh, traditional ecological knowledge to put things that are supposed to be there that actually helps it to be healthy and helps us, helps us to grow this place that is actually going to um, be less of fire damage. And then how do we use that to incubate these ideas to hopefully at some point take it from this a small area that we're taking care of out to the larger area of Joaquin Miller Park mm -hmm. so that we can begin to sustainably take care of the lands that are here for all of us to enjoy. Do you think that this could be a model for other efforts? Are you hearing from other people who want to kind of use the template that you're creating to bring this to other parts of California or other parts of the world or the United States? We absolutely set it up so that it could, we took our time building this tool yeah. so that other people could use it. It wasn't something that was short-minded, that it was only for us to use, but we really wanted to ensure that other tribal people in different places could use this tool as a way of saying, Oakland did it and so can you. And we're hoping that uh, other city cities are reaching out and saying, what did you do? How, to, how to, can we see the information? And so, yes, we're speaking on a lot of different panels because people are interested and want to know, how did you guys do this? How, you know, what was the creation of this idea? 
you know, and we're hoping to, to change laws. We have uh, folks at the Capitol now that are now looking at it how, as the, you know, the um, state of California has created a Truth and Healing Council mm. to look at the genocide that happened in California. Could this be a tool that they could use now throughout the state in order to um, make, make things better, yeah. make things right? And so we're hoping that this does, that this tool takes off beyond us and that it creates its own life in that kind of way that helps to um, build healing all over California. Considering how much Sigorite has accomplished in the last few years, these goals seem achievable. There was virtually zero pushback from the public about the Sequoia Point land transfer, which indicates broad community support for Karina's vision. And of course, it certainly helps that the new mayor is totally on board. I'm a daughter of refugees, and my parents' land was stolen and taken away, and no way can they go back to their homeland. Um, it's still filled with bombs to this day. And so uh, imagining a world where, you know, in the future, they can have their land back and their home back. Uh, it's just, it's priceless. And this is exactly what that is. It's acknowledging acknowledging all of the bloodshed that was that that happened all the land that was stolen um, and not just that but acknowledging the hurt that even though we as a people were not here to probably see and have been a part of but acknowledging the hurt that has caused so many generations of our Native Americans as they go through uh, the trauma the intergenerational trauma uh, and to be able to give this land back it Again, it was very emotional. It was very emotional for many people, including myself. And um, it's not symbolic, it's tangible. And again, I this is just the beginning of a healing process. Of course, we can never you know, get back what was stolen fully, including the lives that were taken too soon. But this is a start and we have to be the leader and somebody has to be able to, you know, leaders have to be able to be courageous enough to say, yes, this was wrong. No, we didn't personally do it ourselves. However, we know that society was wrong in doing what they did. And we're, we're going to try to correct that path by giving this back. Because of the tech industry, the Bay Area is often thought of as a place where the future is being created. Ideas that were born here have reshaped the entire world in the last generation alone. But there are many possible futures. So as we come to the end of this episode, I want you to consider a future that looks like the past. And in doing that, in, in training our minds to perceive that possibility, maybe we should start by listening to the people who have been on this land the longest. I think people need to know the history. Yeah. And I think that, you know, us getting this land is a way of us being able to tell the history and to hold that, but to also to think about a new beginning. How do we all that now live here in Oakland realize it's all of our responsibility to take care of the waters and the lands that we live on for the next seven generations. So it's a indigenous epistemology, it's an idea, a, brought, a thought, a way of being, is to know that the decisions we make today is gonna have an effect on seven generations after we're mm -hmm. gone. We've only been here a very short time. Everything that you see built up, our streets, our buildings, all of this stuff is less than 200 years. And California is a baby compared to the rest of the United States. Everything is new, but all of our waterways here have been culverted. Mm. All of these creeks that have been here that were lush inside of Oakland need to be reopened so that the the ecology can grow again that will bring fresh water, that those salmon are able to come back up those creeks and into the rivers again for the health of all of us that live here, that we're able to re-engage in the land to get rid of the pollution, that we have the ability today with this beautiful place that we call the Bay Area that is full of technology and new ideas, that we can clean the bay so that we can eat out of it again that we can be sustainable in this place that we call Oakland, that this is not something that is an imaginary thing, but that we actually have the ability to do it today.
Thank you so much for listening to episode number 100 of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. If this is your first time listening to the show, you can find my back catalog, 99 more episodes on your favorite podcast app. Check it out. There's all kinds of stories. And if you like what you hear, please spread the word. This is a independently produced show. I have no marketing budget, so I really rely on you out there, the listeners, to keep this show alive. Uh, On that topic, I need to send a massive thank you to all my Patreon supporters. I never would have gotten this far without you. Thank you so much for all the $3 donations, the $5 donations, $10 donations. It really adds up and allows me to spend months working on episodes like the one you just heard. If anybody else wants to donate, you can find a link to my Patreon at eastbayyesterday.com. You can also find links to my newsletter and social media. Uh, I have a ton of really exciting events planned for the next few months. A lot of these events will definitely sell out. Sorry, that's just the way it is. But you can be the first to find out and get tickets by following East Bay Yesterday on, uh, you know, the social platform of your choosing. Oh, and uh, I was so busy with self-promotion, I almost forgot to give a shout-out to the friends of Joaquin Miller Park. Uh, Thanks to you folks for volunteering and spending your time up in the park, keeping it clean and user-friendly. Love you guys. Finally, did you guys really enjoy the music in this episode? I hope you did. It was all created originally just for this show by my good friend Mark Pantoja. He's a musician, he's a writer, he's a bartender, he's a renaissance man. Uh, You can check out his stuff at markpantoja.com. I'll throw a link in the show notes. Okay, that's it. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more East Bay Yesterday. Well, actually, I want to make sure that I'm getting the pronunciation right, because, like, I'm going to say it when I'm, like, writing the introduction to the show. Is it... Should I try, or do you want to... Go ahead, say, try Okay. Ahead. okay. <laughs> Rinamu Puitirekne? Rinimu? Rinimu? Pulte? Pulte? Irikne. Irikne. Rinime... Rinimu? Rinimu Pulte Irikne. All there right, now I just got to listen to myself yeah, doing yeah, that a couple go. of times so I can... Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it's get, probably gets old teaching people how to pronounce Chichenya words, so thank you for your patience. Oh, no way, it's just, <laughs> it, we're all learning together again. Yeah, yeah.